Baltimore, New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. So, Zach, uh, it's been a, a crazy few weeks of extreme heat here in, uh, in New York City, but I think I think things are cooling off, and I'm, I'm getting ready, actually, at the end of this week to uh, to fly to Chile. So I'm going to go to the other side of the world and and have winter, which is which is pretty crazy. Um, have you been? Uh, good, man. I think I think by the time people are hearing this, you will you will actually, in fact, be in Chile. And and I got to say, you've been there a couple 100%. times. Is it a place you recommend people go as a as a wine destination? Oh yeah, dude. I recommend you go there. Like regardless, it's a pretty awesome country that I, I think is starting to grow in terms of awareness, but doesn't, uh, it's a far flight, let's be clear. So I think people are just like, wow, do I want to really, really want to go 12 to 13 hours on a plane, but it's totally worth it. I mean, it's a gorgeous country. Um, you got mountains, you've got glaciers, you've got desert, you've got ocean. Um, it's a really beautiful topography, amazing food, um, really cool people, extremely safe, which I think is something that people don't often realize it's the safest country in South America and the strongest economy in South America. Um, so like, you know, people are feeling good about their lives and, and doing really well. So, you know, you can obviously go out at night, walk around, walk home, um, you know, traveled a lot in South America and there's definitely countries in which you feel like you can't do that. Um, so this is, you know, it just makes it a, a really easy destination for for most people. Um, lots of flights in and out of Santiago, like I said, and then you know you can go to the Atacama Desert, which is you know the driest place on Earth, and see the stars perfectly, or you can go down to the south and see the glaciers, and then of course, like let's not forget, there's like a lot of really awesome wine. So Santiago and Chile as a whole has been sort of described as like a you know a California, if you will, but like if the entire country was basically Napa. So hmm. it's just perfect growing conditions. Um, and so the, the grapes are really easy to grow. They have a lot of super, super old vines. Um, a lot of producers farm organically just because they can. Um, it's a really weird climate because of the, uh, so because of the mountains, the desert, the glaciers and the ocean, it's almost like they're an island inside of a landmass. So you get this quality of produce in the country that you wouldn't get elsewhere and they don't have any issues with, mites and you know other kinds of bacteria etc so like they're actually really hardcore when you fly into chile so you have to actually all your bags have to be scanned um because they're really conscious of what you're trying to bring into the country mm. because of this my comments so, like it's the only also country in south america that doesn't have zika oh, yeah. um they, they just don't really get that kind of stuff which is really uh really crazy and cool uh they don't have phylloxera you know so they have a lot of pre-phylloxera vines it's a it's a super cool place, man. I I highly highly recommend people go there. All right. Well, next time I'm tagging along. Can you fit in my suitcase? <laughs> I don't know. You can lift me, man. Or <laughs> I think it'd be over the wheel. Let's put it that way. Because you know what I want to do? What I want to do is I want to pull you in my suitcase, and then I want to do that thing that like why do why does every other place do this but Americans? Why when you travel abroad, right? Do you go to the airport? And you know what I'm about to say, and you see people wrapping their suitcase in plastic. What is that? You know, I, I've wondered at that when I've been in Europe and seen that. And I just, I have no, I've never gotten an answer that seems satisfactory to me other than like, maybe people are just like, it's a way to have some faith that no one has like tampered with your suitcase or gotten into it or whatever. But like, I don't know. It is but a weird TSA thing. has to get in, they're cutting in. I get, yeah, I guess. Right? Well, but you don't see that as much in Europe. I think like they don't, they don't. I don't think they open back if you're traveling within Europe or whatever. I mean, obviously, if you're traveling to the U.S., that well, even then, no, you're not necessarily getting that when you arrive. I don't know. It's it is a weird thing, and I don't know why. 
either it's not here or why it's so prevalent there. But yes, it is. You will never have a more sort of bizarrely multicultural experience than if you like stand near whatever the like self bag wrapping station is in like pick your European airport. It is like it is the UN, but in a very small scale and none of no one knows how to use the machine. It's so weird. It's like, hey, Giuseppe, I have an idea. Let's wrap our entire suitcase in saran wrap. No one will mess with our stuff then. <laughs> Just like, yeah, it's so weird to me. Have you seen, I, I haven't seen anyone do it with like, uh, you know, aluminum foil, but maybe that happens too. Oh my God, that'd be amazing. And then it's like kind <laughs> of, redu- you know, like you could actually bake the stuff inside. Like yeah. you could have a loaf of bread and you could fresh break your <laughs> loaf of bread on the way to wherever you're going. Yeah, midair. Um, wow, we, we got a business model. Nick, you write this down. We're patenting it. You I like her to hear first. Uh, Fet, fresh, fresh baked bread on your when, flight. Yeah, when you when you land at your destination, you when you land at your destination, you open up your suitcase and there you go. It's it's baked in your suitcase. I love it. I can't see anything wrong with this idea. Is this loaf of bread the size of a suitcase, or is it one loaf of bread? Ugh, I man. think you could do whatever you wanted. Nick. Yeah, that's the good <laughs> thing. Want, Nick, I know you're a younger man than us. Do you really need an entire suitcase sized loaf of bread? You never know. You're going to Italy or something. I'm sure you eat a lot of bread. I got to tell you, they make bread those places. It's pretty good most of the time. Well, Italy's actually hit or miss on bread, but... Italy's terrible on bread because they don't believe in salt. Well, especially in like Tuscany. There's parts parts of Italy with very good bread, but it is definitely hit or miss for sure. Anyway, we are are all over the place today. I love this. So let's (laughs) get into the real topic. I guess. Let's get into the real topic. So so this week, Zach, uh, we we have a topic that you and I both sort of discussed. I think when we were were brainstorming ideas, both of us were like, holy shit, we've, we've noticed this ourselves independently and something we've been wanting to talk about for a while as people have wanted to us talk about it as well some some listeners and that is basically this bias that I think a lot of the the wine world has and I'm not talking about consumers I'm talking about trade towards larger producers and where that comes from and what we can do to sort of fix this hmm. because I think I've noticed it you've noticed it that you'll go to tasting sometimes with larger producers, with certain members of the trade, and they will admit that they haven't ever tried these wines, even though these are wines that are very well known. And oh, and I want to be clear. I'm not talking about mass production wines. So I'm not talking about wines like The Prisoner, right, that we talked about with Eric Asimov. I'm talking about really high quality wines, but from producers that just happen to make a lot of wine, mm-hmm. Right. I'll be honest, Zach, and so I'm, I'm going to have you defend your people here. That's okay. I see this the most often from Psalms. Yeah. And I don't know where this comes from. And so I'm curious. Like, is this just because in the restaurant business, the idea is the more allocated the wine, the better? Like, why are you guys and gals not pouring wines or not tasting wines from producers that pour, you know, that produce bottles, you know, 2 million, 3 million, 4 million bottles? You know, it's a good question, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a couple of different potential answers. So I will say one thing as a sommelier and as someone running a wine program that you do have to be a little bit aware of is there's a real price sensitivity for people around wines that are, that are widely available. And, you know, the realities of restaurant margins and markups on wine are such that people are going to be really price sensitive when you are charging them almost as much for a glass of a bottle of a wine as they can go buy the bottle for in a grocery store or wine shop. I hear from reps all the time who are bringing me product from from large producers and and when they do it's almost always like, 
okay, we're either going to give this to you at such a good, you know, we want this in restaurants and we're going to give this to you at such an outrageously good price that you might, you know, be able to charge less than you normally would. And and therefore the price isn't so hard for people to swallow when they come into the restaurant. Or we're going to give you something, you know, we're going to make another wine that is not for retail and it's only on premise, i.e. restaurants, bars, et cetera. And therefore, you know, you're not going to be directly price compared in that way. But that is one part of it, you know, that, that wines that are that widely available, it's very easy for people to have a sense for what they cost and and to be turned off by paying a, a good pra- a good fraction of the bottle cost uh, per glass in a restaurant, if that's what we're talking about. I think there's also the flip side to this, though, is, you know, people want a certain kind of sommelier, a certain kind of wine director wants to feel like their wine program is a perfect and unique little snowflake. And it is something that they have created and it is a representation of them and their wine ethos. And that's a hard conceit to to kind of uh, carry out when half of your list is stuff that anyone can go buy in a grocery store in all 50 states. I don't think that's necessarily a good goal as a wine director in most cases. I think it's important to have some wines that people are very familiar with that for people who do not necessarily want to take the fantastic voyage that you want them to take with their wine experience, have something that is familiar to them, that is comfortable for them, and that they that is quality. And and I think that comes back to what you were sort of alluding to at the top, which is there is no, to me, there's no inherent reason why making 500 bottles of wine in, implies more quality than making 5 million. Now, it's certainly the case that there are people making very small amounts of wine who make amazing wine, but there's also some people making really small amounts of wine who fucking suck at it. And just because they don't make very much doesn't make it good. And obviously there's some big production wine out there that does suck or is at least not interesting. And we certainly are well aware of those and we don't have to rehash them. We talked about them with Eric. But there are also some peop- some companies and some wineries that make a lot of wine and they make really good wine. And I'm going to, you know, I'll, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll shout out, you know, I think, um, you know, here in the Washington state, Chateau Saint-Michel is a great example of a winery that, you know, they, they make a ton of wine and I try a lot of it in my, you know, professional capacity. We don't pour most of it, um, because a lot of it is aimed at a different, just at a different clientele than what we, that what we're, you know, kind of aiming at. But I'm always amazed at how much, how, how quality the wine is, how sort of true to the varieties and the place it's from, you know, i.e. Washington State, and how reasonably priced it is. And that's an incredible thing. And, you know, it's really easy to get fixated on exclusivity and, you know, tiny production and to forget that when you focus on those things as a wine professional, whether you're a, a sommelier, a, a wine director, owner of a retail shop, or frankly, someone in the media, when you focus on those small production wines, you inherently exclude so many people from the experience because there's just not much of that wine to go around. I agree. And I think <clears throat> I wish there was a way that we could sort of shout this from the rooftops even louder. That, like, look, I, I I love wines that are larger production, smaller production, heavily allocated, what what have you. But I do think that like what's important to remember in the trade is that the wines that you have that are really allocated, right? The consumer is never going to get to drink again, or maybe only at your restaurant, which is great. Maybe that that allows them that says that that says then they have to come back and and dine with you. That's awesome. But if you're really trying to get people excited about wine, some of these larger production places can do that better because they can find the wines other places. And 
so they can get into the wine more and then maybe they'll start experimenting. But I think, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult when we say like, oh, well, we're going to judge a winery based on their production size. Like, I think that's a, that's a, like one of these questions that Matt and I talked about after our podcast with him, you know, Matt Crafton from Chateau Montalena of, you know, a question that he doesn't, he, he doesn't love getting, which is how much wine do you produce? Because for, for him, if he produces good wine, it shouldn't matter. And I think we've gotten into this, you know, system across the board in the United States where we think bigger means bad. That like, you know, if you've gotten bigger as a producer of clothes or a producer of beer or a producer of food, you're necessarily not as good as these smaller producers. But in fact, in a lot of ways, you can be better. I'm not saying you know, always, but in some cases, if you're still producing, you know, ethically and organically, et cetera, you get, you know, economies of scale. So you can produce organic wine more cheaply than others. You can pass technology and innovation down to other producers because you can innovate more cheaply, right? So there are things that come, there are benefits that come with being larger, as long as you are still a, you know, a good producer, and I think that, that that's like where we need to divide the line, right? I, I'm not advocating that big producers are all bueno. A lot of them are garbage. You know, a lot of them are using mass production methods and mass farming methods in order to produce lots of bulk crap wine that's not good for anything. It's not good for the environment. It's not good for your liver. It's not pleasurable to drink. At least the larger producers that are producing organically, look, so alcohol is not good for your liver, but they're at least producing the wine in a way that's, that's better for the environment as better for the planet as a whole, right? Like, and so we should celebrate those people. And, and in a lot of ways, I feel like right now we don't just because they're big. Yeah. Well, and it's also like it, it sort of points at this, I guess, sort of unex- unexamined issue with the fascination with small production, which is like – if we cut out all the people, all the companies that make large amounts of wine, what the fuck are people going to drink? Like we, we as wine professionals, beverage professionals like to, you know, like the fact that people are drinking more and more wine, obviously up into a point. And yet what is mostly absorbing a lot of that consumption? It's wine that is produced at scale because that's dominates the industry. It dominates the store shelves. It dominates, you know, the all the restaurant lists where it's not a song running it. You know, you go to any, you know, I, I mean I certainly see this all the time. You go to you go to a restaurant where they're not wine focused at all and it, and what is on the list, it's a bunch of, you know, large production wines. And that doesn't make it bad. I mean there are some like I said, there's some really good things there. There's also some crap, unfortunately. And, you know, if you have a restaurant and a wine program, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea to have someone in charge of it who maybe knows a little bit about wine. But that's, you know, <laughs> to, to each business their own. But I think, you know, the reality is that we want people to to drink wine as a part of their regular life. And if you're and if the only thing you're interested in talking to people about or serving them is incredibly special wine, even if it's not super expensive, just if it's hard to get, they're not going to be able to do that. You know, so it, it's like you said, it sucks for a guest, it sucks for anyone to be have a chance to try a wine, be really excited about it and then realize they stand zero chance of ever having it again. And not just because of the cost. You know, cost is obviously part of the burden here um, or the barrier with some allocated wines. But there's, like, really good wine out there that's that's small production and allocated. It's not that expensive. It's just they make very little of it. And you might get your one shot at one bottle. And then, you know, how does that serve anyone if that's the only thing you can turn someone on to? It's not to say you shouldn't have those wines. Obviously, they can be great. and, And I have some of them in my program. But I also try and have wines that... 
people who like can I can if they say, oh, you know, we really love this. Where can I go get a bottle? I can say, here are eight places in Seattle that I know carry this. Not well. Let me t- email the winemaker and see if they forgot a bottle in the you know in the warehouse, and I'll see if I can get you one. So you know it, we have to remember in this industry, you know, who are we in the long run trying to to serve? Who are we trying to benefit? And you know, if it's if it's the average or even the sort of more invested but not obsessive wine drinker, we have to have a, a familiarity with and a and a you know sort of a, a an awareness of what people are drinking, and what people are drinking is largely wine that's produced in large quantities. It's really difficult here because, you know, I think on the one hand, I do understand this, this thought process that like, I mean, even as you were talking about how some of these larger producers, right, you do see them on other lists. Like I do understand how in the, in the, in the wine focused restaurants, you want to, you want to see wines you don't see all every day. You know, I just think at the, at, the, at the end of the day, though, you want to know if you're a consumer and you talk to that sommelier and you tell them about this larger winery you like, that they're not going to be like, oh, well, I've never had that before. Or they're going to turn their nose up on it. I think as a, as a wine professional, it's important for all of us to taste those wines too, to be aware of for those sure. wines, to know what most people are drinking, right? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I will say one thing in defense of sommeliers, as I do on occasion. Well, I mean, obviously. <laughs> and that is, I think there is a there is a mutual um, sort of missed opportunity here. And part of that is, I think some of these brands have, and these producers have frankly, either been turned off from the sommelier community, maybe somewhat justifiably by, you know, sort of snobbishness or disinterest. But they've also maybe sort of, they're so consumer focused that they don't really pay attention to trade. And it's not to say that I can't go out and buy some of these wines on my own, but let's be honest. When I'm when I'm drinking, when I'm tasting wine professionally, I'm tasting what my reps are bringing in, and I'm tasting. You know, I'm not paying to do that. It's my job, and and it's their job to try and sell it to me. And I think some of these producers. I beg to differ. I was I really was concerned for a second there. That was uh that was that was something something else. Uh, I beg to yeah, differ. Please go for it. I think I think that for the most part. Every single producer, whether I, whether it's it's good overall or not, puts the most importance on Psalms, even these big producers. And they would love if you were tasting their wines. But for the most part, a lot of reps don't bring Psalms these wines because they know the Psalms don't want to taste them or that they're not looking for them. So they don't taste them. But like most producers, they would go gaga if they thought that you would taste them on behalf of your restaurant group. 100% they would. Like to them, they still, you know, we still put a lot of emphasis on wine being, you know, on premise, we would say in the restaurant, as opposed to off premise in the wine shop. We just do. Sure. I think you you hear producers talk about it all the time. They they want Psalms. They want Psalms. They want Psalms. It's why, you know, the sommelier gets a heightened profile over, you know, the wine shop, even if the wine shop may be influencing just as many drinkers or more. Yeah. And so – I think, you know, in a lot of cases, reasons you don't taste those wines is because the reps don't think that you will or you would want to. And, they, and at the end of the day, the rep just needs to make the sale, right? So the rep needs to bring you things they'll buy because the rep needs to make their commission in order to live. We all need, we all got to eat, man. It's all about money. For sure. Right? And it's true that, it's true that, yeah, I mean, well, you know, you have to understand, you know, that that my obligations are, you know, to, to my, obviously to my clientele, but also to, you know, the people who own the restaurant. And part of that is, you know, I have a sort of a, a, a mission statement such as it is about our wine program. And it has certain, it's, you know, I give, I'm given a lot of latitude, but it's not entirely up to me what I put on the list. And, you know, 
so that does mean that there are certain things that are just not going to be a part of it because they don't fit with what we're trying to do as a as a restaurant. But I, I think that there are there are sort of um, there's a middle ground to find here, right? And I agree with you to some extent that there. It, I'm sure that if I went to my reps and said, "Hey, I want to taste these things," there would be no trouble pulling samples and getting them to me. It might be a little bit of trouble. I said, I want to taste these even though I'm not going to buy them. I just want to know what they're like. And, you know, you, we can debate whether that's whether it's worth it for the those businesses for people like me to know what those wines taste like, even if I'm not going to buy them in a professional capacity. But I also think that it is why as a sommelier and as a, as a professional in a variety of capacities, including as a quasi-professional podcast host, it's important to for me on my own to seek out this information and whether that's traveling and visiting large production producers as well as small, whether it's occasionally just fucking buying a bottle of, of large production wine and drinking it at home. Like I have no problem doing those things. And in fact, I do those things on a pretty regular basis. I mean, it's one of the nice things for me about, um, you know, having a wife who checks me on my bullshit occasionally. And sometimes, you know, what she wants Ooh, is, good. you know, frankly, you know, wine that she drank before she met me. And she drank a lot of really interesting good wine, but she also drank some larger production wine because that's what was readily available or what they had at work functions and things like that. And it's it's important for me to be cognizant of those things because as you said, they're the common they're the lingua franca of the wine industry in this country because they are what most people experience on a regular basis, whether it's at a work function, whether it's at a restaurant that doesn't have a, a wine program of note, or whether it's what they drink at home. And you're right, it, it would be it would be crazy to be a beer expert and not know what Budweiser tastes like, or even, I don't know, um, you know, severe Sierra Nevada Pale Ale or something like that, right? Like, we could look at large production stuff that's not maybe the absolute macros. And it would be, you know, if we had a conversation with our good friend Kat Walensky, and she didn't know what those beers tasted like, we would say, what the fuck? But you're, it's true, you can talk to people who are sommeliers and other wine professionals who don't know what the wine equivalents of those taste like, and that is lame they should it's it's your job to be familiar even if it's not what you're ever going to buy for your restaurant or what you would ever choose to drink on your own it is your obligation as a professional to have some familiarity with the things that your guests are familiar with well zach i think i think we i think we worked through this i like that i started out by defending psalms and then just ranted at them that's how i do yeah i think you look i think we worked through this i think like it's the moral of the story is like it's understandable why you you wouldn't have access to these things or why you would have a bias, but you to be, you know, a really good wine professional, you have to get over it, you know, and that we shouldn't just be judging places based on how large they are and say, Oh, because they're large, they must not be good or they must not be quality. Cause I think my bias has been changed a lot. You know, I think I used to have that same bias. And I think over the past few years, I've, I've tasted with a lot of large producers and I've been like, wow, some of these wines or a lot of these wines are really good, uh, especially producers who, you know, for some, some, you know, have, have some of their wines on the grocery store shelves. And I'm like, wow, like they make some really quality California wine or they make some really quality Italian or French wine. And, you know, my, my thought that like, there's never, there's no way in hell I'd ever get a good wine at the grocery store was stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got to get over it. <laughs> well, you know, we all learn and grow. Thankfully, I think so too. Well, Zach, uh, it's been a great conversation. Maybe next week I'll be chatting with you from Chile. Um, Hopefully we'll be able to make that happen. But until then, I will talk to you. And thanks for listening. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is recorded in New York City at VinePair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry, and the show is produced by Zach Joal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grinberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.